At this moment in time, it feels like 80% of the world's sports-related podcasts are sponsored by gambling sites and apps. And First Amendment-wise, that's fair. They have a right to advertise. But I just want to say, it really bothers me. Out here in California, FanDuel sponsored a pro-gambling bill that it deviously disguised as a bill to help homeless veterans. According to a recent New York Times story, more and more universities, universities, are accepting sponsorships from gambling apps, then encouraging students to start betting. It's weird, it's addictive, it's wrongheaded, and it creeps me the fuck out. My name is Jeff Perlman. I'm the New York Times bestselling author of 10 books and the host of Two Writers Slinging Yang, the podcast where one writer, me, talks writing with another writer every single week. Today's guest is Glasses Malone, the Watts-raised hip-hop artist whose music is fantastic, whose flow is tight, whose writing is crisp and smart, and whose career includes a shitload of songs and albums and compilations with artists ranging from Lil Wayne and Birdman to Ty Dolla Sign and Kendrick Lamar. This is episode number 286. Let's sing some Yang. Dad, your podcast sucks, and you smell like vinegar and cottage cheese. All right, glasses Malone, my first thing. We've now um, we've now met in person two times. Yeah. You haven't been wearing glasses either time. It's a huge disappointment. I feel like you're a fraud and you're living a lie. I think you need to change your name. Do you want to defend yourself in this issue? No, 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 no. My name was glasses at first because I lost my glasses. Is that true? Yeah, it's really the truth. My homie Pluck was making fun of me. He's like, man, where are your glasses at? And I'm like, I don't know. But at that time, I'd always be squinting. So I, I didn't have contacts. Now I got contacts. But I still wear my frames a lot, though. I wear my frames out sometimes. But I notice when I wear my glasses, a lot more people know it's glasses. Have you thought about changing it to contacts, Malone? Uh, I thought about dropping Malone altogether. Just being glasses? Yeah. Yeah, that's pretty good, actually. People like one name, like Cher. Wait. I'm going to go somewhere. I didn't think we were going to go. I'm being serious. <laughs> What's the difference between a great performer name, hip hop name? We'll just do hip hop because, you know, you're in a genre versus a mediocre one. Like what would it matter if Kendrick Lamar's name was like Shelly Silverstein? Would it still work or does it need to be a cool name? Well, so Kendrick Lamar's first name when I first when he was a, a kid out of high school, it was just K-Dot. Right. And um I think it just, it you know, like anything else, it got to fit the brand. You know, in and out like the drive-through, in and out, that makes sense. Um, I, it's some names that I think are pretty, like, lame, but, you know, people still have substantial careers. So I grew up listening to Public Enemy, right? And That's a fantastic name. Public Enemy is a great name. Yeah. Chuck D is a cool name. I don't think Flavor Flav is a great name. I just think he's a great character. Or is Flavor Flav a great hip-hop name, in your opinion? I agree. The name is kind of a bit... Corny. No, I mean, I think at that time I didn't know what the hell it meant. So, I mean, it is pretty unique. You will never meet somebody else named Flavor Flav. <laughs> so, but I, I think um, for the most part, I think I, I really cherish more of the unique name. So I guess Flavor Flav is pretty unique. Right. But, but remember that whole era, that whole era is the ice era. It was a thousand ices. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. That's a fair point, actually. Could you come along now considering Ice Cube, Ice Tea? Could you come along now and be an ice or would it feel outdated and stupid? I would hope somebody does. I would love to see somebody named Trayvon call himself Ice Trey. Oh, yeah. It's I good. think that would be tight. I think that would. It's like when G Perigo came back with the curl. You know what I'm saying? Right. I thought that was fire. So a new ice would be tough. Like somebody named Ice Trey or Ice D. Ice C would be tight too. Ice C. I see what you're doing there. 
All right. So of all the songs you've done, and I am, I feel like I'm now well-versed in the Glasses Malone catalog. To me, the one that just leaps off the page times a million, I'm not that others don't, is Tupac Must Die, sure. which is basically the perspective of Orlando Anderson, who, uh, for people who don't know, Orlando Anderson was basically kind of beaten up by Tupac and his, and his crew in a casino the night that Tupac was later shot. Orlando Anderson was accused later of killing Tupac. I guess there's some debate over whether he did. Mm-hmm. I'll, I'll play a clip here. And route to about to watch Tyson do his fizzle. Vegas vacation, it was just to clear my mental. Four Negroes deep, white Cadillac rental out the city where they stretching youngins out like a limo. I'm fascinated by the whole genesis of this. Why would you write a song called Tupac Must Die from the vantage point of Orlando Anderson? So this is what's weird, right? And, and I'm gonna be honest. And it sounds crazy because I think most people think it's tongue in cheek, but it's not. As I'm learning about what hip hop is, I'm realizing that 99.9% of people in America, right, have never met a crip or blood or a drug dealer. So a lot of the things that are super normal, you know, in my community and in, in, in a few of these small communities, because it's not a lot of Watts or Comptons around the country. It's, it just feels like it's a lot, but it's not. Um, like we're all vested in the same information. So, you know, you think the world is vested in that. That's how I walked into, you know, the genre we call hip hop. Like, oh, everybody know all this stuff. So I just need to make this original perspective from my life. And what I realized was most people have no idea. And great hip hop is all about giving the street perspective, you know, to a bunch of mainstream ideas. You know, whether it's the lingo, whether it's the fashion, you know, it's still a hat. It's still a baseball hat, even if you wear it to the back. Right. You know what I'm saying? It's so it's the cultural, the cultural um, experience of that mainstream idea of a baseball cap. Um, once I realized everybody saw me as a crip, that was the first thing they knew. They didn't care that, you know, I had a four point some GPA. They don't care. Uh, 13, 20 on SAT. They don't care about none of this stuff. They just know Glasses Malone is a crip. And he's from the West. My job became, I need to give you the cultural take of something that's mainstream. So, I mean, you've seen the baseball cap to the back a thousand times. You've seen that. At this point, Tupac's death, you know, uh, rest in peace to, to Pac, is such a mainstream, you know, iconic thing. It's mainstream, like. You know, it might be as popular as, you know, John F. Kennedy in some degrees, like as far as the, the situation and you know, how people talk about it. I mean, John Kennedy, she was on tape. Yeah. So I know how that goes. I know the whole situation. I know the mentality that goes behind it. It's not something uncommon in these little small niche areas. That actually would be what hip hop is. So that was my first time. Like, yo, let me give people real hip hop, you know, from the West Coast perspective, this this real street take morality, you know, the, the aspect of morality when it comes to hip hop, you know, the, the cultural aspect, that's morality in hip hop. I mean, and it became the most hip hop thing that I can do at that time. I mean, it's really interesting because I remember talking to you about this when we met. You are empathetic toward Orlando Anderson. Like you basically are like, here's why he felt compelled to shoot Tupac, like why he felt like he needed to. It's a weird and I don't know if risky is too strong of a word, sure. but definitely a gutsy take to be like, I get why this guy killed this cultural icon. 
Weren't you a little concerned that people are going to be like, what the fuck? What do you, how can you have any empathy toward this guy? Um, sure. I thought that I thought, I thought it could be a little rough, but you know where I found comfort at. And when NWA, when I was like seven, NWA dropped, uh, fuck the police. Right. And at that time in America, the police were like celebrated heroes. They, they were the people who got the cats out the tree and kept bad guys out your neighborhood. You know what I mean? But there was another perspective, you know, from where we from. So I found a lot of, I found a blanket in that. I could cover myself in that. Like, you know what, this is what real hip hop is. You know what I'm saying? It is. Most people may not understand it. Um, Another thing that helped me is Tupac is no longer just this cultural phenomenon. Tupac is as uh, American phenomenon as Elvis Presley in in a lot of regards. Like he doesn't belong to the culture like that. That ship sailed, you know, probably 20 years ago. Like Tupac belongs to the world and they are not letting you just have him anymore. The culture, you know, he doesn't belong to the culture. Snoop doesn't belong to the culture anymore. Like These guys are mainstream phenomenons. So that was another freeing thing that I, I just had to free myself of the, the the worry that people would not understand because honestly, more people in the culture, they got it. They was like, oh, I get it. That's crazy. But more of the mainstream people, they was like, you know, the same with, you know, NWA. Like, how dare you talk about the police this way? That's how people felt. It was more it was more middle class white kids in my inbox threatening my life. Like, oh, I'm going to come to your neighborhood and kill you. It's like, what the fuck? <laughs> you know what I'm saying? But it, it was it was it was everything that a great hip hop moment should be as far as records go. Third verse, you write. Now I meet up with the homies, let the niggas know the deal. Enemy go jummy, so I sang that got a spill. Because he rap, fuck that nigga, thank you, ill. I'ma show him that this trip is shit for real. Forty Glock field, choice of weapon for revenge. Justice won't kill, my ego in suspense. These niggas popping pills, are they shooting heroin? Thinking I'ma let this slide. So these conies, bro, we been I'm actually fascinated. Like, I'm fascinated by the actual writing process. Like, you're writing this song. Are you like in the shower and the lyrics come to you? Are you sitting in front of a laptop? Like, how does this stuff actually come to you? So that particular one was, I actually was in the shower. It's funny. I was playing the music. Like, I don't write it down, right? It's all in my mind. Being around Lil Wayne kind of forced me to start composing ideas in my head to to focus on the flow so you could have a good flow. I mean, if I wrote it down, sometimes you write too many words. So I, I have, you know, made it a business to write the idea in my head, not to write it down on a piece of paper. So I was in the shower and I was just trying to explain it in the most poetic you know, way possible. And um, the homies, little homies know the deal. Enemigos got me so the same they got a spill because he rapped. Fuck that nigga, thank you, yeah. I'm going to show him that this crippin' shit for real. Yeah. Choice of weapon for revenge. Justice want to kill. My ego in suspense. Yeah, yeah. And it, I just felt like you're, you're, it's like you're setting the mood as a writer, right? You're setting the mood for people to understand. Now, it's a, it's a lot of lingo. And Ice-T always tells me this. He like, the way you talk, he said, even when you're not trying to, it's such a cultural phenomenon. Like, it's, he told me, that, like, it's like a cultural revolution when I just talk. So when I'm rapping these ideas, I have to be mindful. I think Ice Cube is one of the best writers of translating what we're saying culturally to everybody else. My stuff has a lot of seasoning still, even for other people. You know what I mean? What do you mean by seasoning? Like culture. Like, you know, I I use a lot of lingo 
that we use. Okay. You know what I mean? Like, I, I to me, I try to even, like, referring to blood. Like, Sangre got a spill because he rapped. Fuck that nigga, thank you. I'm going to show him that this crippin' shit for real. Uh, Choice of weapon for revenge. My ego is suspense. These niggas popping pills. These niggas popping pills and they shooting heroin thinking I'm going to let that slide. So these corners we must bend, you know what I'm saying? Just, I'm trying to find the most poetic way to say all of the, you know, all of the things I'm saying, you know what I mean? Without making it too metaphorical, but still, you know, entertaining to listen, but still I want you to be there. Does it torture you? Does this stuff torture you? Nah, nah, it's second really? nature. Nah, second nature. Really? It's, it's harder for me to, what, what's hard for me is to, I don't like the term dumb it down, but to take flavor off of it. That's hard because then I'm not sure what's corny. So when I'm doing what I do, like that's particularly, it's simple because this is just how I would say it even in real life. Right. You know I mean, this is how I talk to my father today. This is how I talk to my old lady today. This is how I talk to my friends today. I, I, I really am forced to speak American English. You know what I'm saying? I'm really yeah. forced to, like, most of the time I could just, you know, speak how we speak. So it's hard to remember that majority of the population that's listening to my music in America, they're versed at American English. They're not versed at Watts cultural, you know, language. Yeah, that's really interesting because do you, all right, like uh, I took my kid, just an example, my kid, we went to uh, last, within the last few months, we went, we saw Kendrick Lamar. Nice. We saw J. Cole. We saw Tyler, the creator. Nice. And then a couple weeks ago, I saw Nas, right? Nice. And, which was great, by the way. And, yeah. um, that's not like a good lineup. Yeah, it's great. It was not, it was Nas Wu Tang and, uh, oh, wow. The Rhymes. Yeah. Oh, that was crazy. It was great. But here's the interesting thing it was 80% white, like 80% oh, yeah. white, yeah. which is great. You know, whatever you're reaching out to an audience is great. But I do wonder, like, okay. You're writing a song. You know, a good portion of your audience has never been to Watts and never been to Compton and wasn't in a gang and blah, blah, blah. Do you have to write it differently or do you just or is it up to the audience members to adjust to your verbiage? Better business. Right. Ice Cube does better business than I would because he understands how to translate the lingo into just American English, acceptable English. Um, for me, it's just harder, which is crazy because I was like really good in English. But, you know, the more you you don't use the language and you talk specifically in a certain way, it's just hard. Like I'm telling you, I, Ice-T is the person that made me realize it probably a year ago. And he was like, man, the way you talk. And like I was like, what you, you know, I'm thinking like, should everybody talk like this? But I, I'm starting to realize, no, they don't. You know what I mean? I, I speak a very serious, you know, a slang that's, that's, you know, prevalent. I, I'm not really ever forced to speak American English. So I think it's better for business to be able to translate it. You know what I mean? Or you have to wait like Wu-Tang where, you know, I think at that time in hip hop, the music did so much of the work. Like, you know, the stuff RZA was doing was insane. Buster's music. Um, Nas's music. You know, they came at a time where the music was such a, 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 a refreshing, you know, drink that you didn't care what they said the first time. But I think years and years now, you've, you know, they, they're writing courses, you know, they're writing college courses on what Nas is saying. So if you missed the translation when it first came out in 94, you know, you fast forward 20 years later, 
you know, 30 years later, you got it. So now it went from him doing simple clubs to now you can do the form. So that's the price you pay. It's, it's a longer journey. Um, I would love to. I just don't know how. Like when I try, it gets corny. I mean, in my ear, at least. Right. So it's right, like right. it's it's a uh, it's a choice. I make the choice to, you know, I don't like the term keeping it real because that's not what it is. I, I just don't know how to do it good. Like Ice Cube knows how to do it great. I don't know how to do it great. I asked um, I asked Chuck D this a while ago. I was DMing with Chuck D, long story. And um, I grew up in a small, tiny conservative town in upstate New York. My graduating class had three African-American kids in it, two. And one happened to be my best friend. And he introduced me to hip hop, right? Nice. And I started listening to Public Enemy and Black Steel in the Hour of Chaos and Fight nice. the Power and all this stuff. And it, it just opened my mind. And it was an education for me that I would not have had otherwise in a town where everyone was listening to Merle Haggard and Bon Jovi, right? Sure. Bon Jovi is nice. I like Bon Jovi, but I'm just saying, like, you're no, not. No, no, I get it. I get it. Yeah, you, yeah, this would be the mainstream thing to listen to. Yes. So, doesn't matter to you educating white people because, yeah. like, you. I feel like it's an underrated role that hip hop has done in America. Yeah. Do you give a shit about that? Yeah, yeah. It's really important. Why? Um. Because I think that's the solution to really. So as much as I I understand the world is crappy you there there has to be a desire in any great sale like every great sale the one thing they have to want to do is pass information like that's for sure the purpose of a functioning sale is to pass information the best ones pass information right so my natural goal is to pass information i feel like when i get somebody that's not from where i'm from to understand a little bit more the right person can hear it everybody can know they're not as ignorant i think a lot of stuff that we mistake or we call racism is not really racism. Racism requires true racism requires intellect. Most people are just ignorant. You know, you can't be like ignorant and racist. That means you're not an is. You can't be an ignorant pianist. You have to know about the piano to truly be, you know, a, a, a master, which, you know, is or a professional of the piano. So I think as a, as my body is filled with billions and trillions of sales. Like that's my goal to pass information. I'm definitely not passing it to people where I'm from. They already know. Right. So, but you still have to do it. Like personally me in a functioning way, I have to do it in still a way that I can deem hip. Like, so it's finding the balance is everything, but yeah, that's super important to me. Tupac must die was really important to me because I felt there's such a weird cast over gangs because, you know, most of mainstream's education of gangs or gang members come from probably about three ideas. Rocket and Colors, which is a police film. Um, Doughboy in Boys in the Hood, which is a father film, you know, yeah. about black fathers being and not being and being. And Snoop Dogg. That's pretty much every mainstream person introduction into being what they think a crip is. So it's such limited information so if I ask most people, what do they know about Crips? They're going to say they wear blue. And if I say, what's five things, they won't be able to even get to the third thing. So my job is to make sure I just like disseminate the information of how this can happen. You know, this is no different than 9-11. You know, somebody does something that's treacherous that you cannot stand. And, you know, you dedicate the next 20 years you know, to looking for people to get revenge, you know, because you feel like that's in the sense of justice. You're from L.A., obviously. You have a, a, a history that you've talked about a lot. Your mom in and out in prison, I think three times, yeah. one time for a 20 year sentence. Um, 
you're obviously a super smart kid who like smart in a different kid. life path is probably a lawyer somewhere going to Princeton. I mean, like you're like, oh. like, and you were a gang member, you were in the cribs. And it's interesting because on the one hand, you talk about like people shouldn't be defined, but like the way we are defining people because they were a member of a gang or are a member of the gang is sort of ruinous and unfair. And on the other hand, it's a really defining factor of your music and your background. Sure. So how does that influence what you're saying and who you are? That's a good question. Cause you just, that, that curveball at the end, how does it define my music and who I am? Okay. So the general perception of being a crip means nothing. How do you it mean? It just means that literally my friends are my friends and I grew up in this community. It doesn't define me past that outside of that. I am not all just like, the legal system is not the only way to deal with everything for me. That's for sure the defining thing. You know what I mean, I, I'm not necessarily at the binding presence of the law. You know, so if somebody does an injustice to me, you know, at a grocery store, I might jump out the car and whop their ass upside the head. You know, um, uh, if someone breaks into your house right now, do you call the police? No, like, or am I there? No, you're not there. Um, no, my old lady probably would, though. But I'm going to go look for the person actively, you know what I mean? But obviously the police have better resources, so they better at it. But, you know, I, it just, it, I, I, I just, it just, to me, the defining thing, how does it define me is that it's, I am not always at the, the force of whatever the law tells me is fair. Mm-hmm. That's at, you know, that's pretty much the maximum. And is there a moment, is that growing up black in America or is that a defining moment of growing up inner city LA, something happened to you in America that led you to just a hundred percent distrust the law enforcement? It's probably a combination of both. Um, but you know what? I, I think it's a long line of outlaws based out of California. Yeah. Based out of the West coast. I mean, I think, ton of outlaws. We celebrate some of the Cowboys. I mean, Wyatt Earp. We celebrate a lot of different style outlaws. You know, some guys who were like, I, I think I'm a very sensible man. You know what I mean? Like I'm sensible. Um, I, you, like anybody else, you can misuse your power as, you know, having a military, which is a gang behind you. You can misuse your power for horrible or you could use it for good. That's really the dynamic that every gang member face. Like, in our community, right where I grew up at on 117th and Watts, it used to be a, a it was a drug program. So between my neighborhood is this jail, like the Linwood jail, that's now a ladies jail, but it wasn't at first. It was everybody can go there. The Linwood jail, it was a drug program. And when you walk down my street, it was a shortcut to the metro station. People would walk down that was leaving the drug program. And I had certain friends, certain homeboys from the community, from my gang that were my friends they would use their power to harass people, you know, that wasn't um, like in the life, you know, and I, I would like pretty much go put them in a place. Like, why would you give a person a hard time? that's not in the life. Right. I mean, so some people misuse their power, like a police officer. Some people just misuse their power. And then that becomes the representation of all the whole experience, just like a police officer. It's the same thing as a police officer. You get the power, right. Of, the, uh, you know, the legal system behind you. And 
you know, some people misuse it. They get out of control with it. They they don't take care of it. Same thing with games. You know what I mean? It's people who just misuse the power. I just wasn't one of those people. As far as how does it define my music, that was the most thing, that was the most important thing I didn't figure out until Tupac must die. I didn't realize that as a business, people saw me as kind of this one dimensional thing and I have to kind of fit everything. If I want to be successful in business, not in art, but in business, I need to fit it all into something that they can consume from a crib. As you age and, you know, you're in your 40s now and you're, you're, you know, you're a guy with family and blah, blah, blah. Like, could you credibly do an album and have a song about like going to Whole Foods or my dental appointment or whatever? Like, I always I'm fascinated by hip hop because it's such a new medium that in a way you don't have the Mick Jaggers of hip hop yet. You know, you don't have guys who are in their seventies. Jay-Z is probably the oldest sort of still prominent, still productive, still putting out new material that people are still listening to. It's very hard to be a big daddy Kane or a run DMC. And Snoop, Snoop, new- Snoop too. Snoop too. Snoop, sure. Like, you know, you're not in a gang anymore and you're not, you know, you're not struggling like you once were and you have a pretty steady life. Does it get harder to produce music that is meaningful as you settle into middle age them? That's a great question. Um, so I'm, I'm from, I'm still from a gang for whatever that means. You know what I mean? Like I'm, I'm still very much a crip. Like I'm still a Seven Street Watts. My, my loyalty to my friends, which means that if you do something to them, I'm not going to tell my friends to call the police. You probably gonna have to deal with me to some degree if you do something to my friends. Right. Um, I don't have to sell drugs anymore. So that changes the whole dynamic, right? That's one of the biggest things is, you know, um, committing crimes to earn your living. So that takes you away from the major crime element. That's the major crime element, how you earn your living. That's where you do most of the crime at. You know, most of the crime is not, you know, shooting and killing. Even prime glasses Malone as a crip, it's not most of the crime is committed against other people. It's really earning your living. So that's whether you're robbing somebody, that's whether you're selling drugs, that's whether whether you're burglarizing houses like they call flocking today. Um, So the thing about hip hop, especially West Coast hip hop, a.k.a. gangster rap, your mind, you know, even in its earliest form, is not really about doing something to other people as a willingness to do something to other people. It's a willingness to you don't see eye to eye with where the justice system is. You don't see eye to eye with where the government is. That's truly the source of what, you know, gangster rap is. It's it's this cultural expression from this poor urban community, you know, that's oppressed and you don't agree. Hell, we are in such a crazy time. Like I have an album, right, called Cancel These Nuts that I finished and I'm, you know, getting it ready to release. Like, it's probably more gangster than anything I made. And it's not about selling drugs. You know, selling drugs ain't as gangster as it seems. I mean, Big Pharma sells tons of drugs. It's, right. That's really just the way you describe it. But it's, that's earning a living. And when you buck against the system, like the hip hop you're talking about when I was young, when I was a little kid, was politically charged. Right. You, know, you combated political stances. My new album combats social stances. Like society is in such a weird place. And it's like, you know, where if you actually speak up against it, it's like you are public enemy number one, like right now. Like, so I'm still making 
because my mind is not conformed to mainstream, I'm still I'm actually making more gangster rap than I've ever have by the true definition. So it's not about, you know, glasses, Malone selling Sherm, PCP, you know, for cyclidine all day. It's or glasses, Malone shooting at, you know, other gang members. But it's like glasses, Malone standing up against society telling me I can't have an opinion on this or a metrosexual culture that I don't agree with or uh, Kanye should have never married this lady that's a whore and celebrating being a whore. Right. Like those are the most gangstrous thing. Like those are the most gangstrous things I've ever, Tupac must die is probably my greatest gangster rap record. Right. You know what I'm saying? And it's not about really anything outside of morality. So long as you understand the art and you could keep defining it, then you could, rec- you know, once you define it, you can create it in any way possible you want to. I couldn't make a song about going to the dentist. That's gangster. But, Man, my life is filled with so many gangster things. Like it's stuff that like I just won't a block. Like I won't get I won't I won't cooperate. I just want you to know if you make a song about going to the dentist, I want 50% of the world. I got you. I will. And I'm gonna make that song for you because I'm gonna figure out how to make that a gangster rap song. Fuck the dentist. Fuck the dentist. I like that. <laughs> I, but you know what that whole <laughs> it's funny because I can't get into the like people always talk to me about fuck the police and you know Dre, we used to talk about that song and I was like, I just could never get into fuck a job title. Oh, interesting. I don't really have songs like fuck the police because I was like, that's like a job. Oh, that's like fine. fuck waiters, you know what I'm saying? Like, I just, <laughs> and I know people people gonna see this and homies gonna be like, that's just crazy. But I really never agree with that take. Like I see a fundamental purpose for a true society. Like how could I be an outlaw without law? Like, I get that they have a purpose. They have a functioning purpose, you know what I mean, in society. So to say, you know, outside of the fact they're on the opposite end of the spectrum, it doesn't have to be, I don't have to hate them. I just understand our functioning purposes are completely different and we're competing. Before we continue with two writers slinging Yang, a quick word from our sponsor. Hey, this is Jeff Perlman. I'm here with my mother-in-law, Laura, who's graciously hosting Thanksgiving this year. Did you carve the turkey? Laura, I'm recording my podcast. I'm having 17 people here in a matter of hours get off the worldwide internet and carve the turkey. Laura, just give me a minute. You kids with your hip hop and television. When I was a girl, we spent Thanksgiving together as a family, getting drunk and laughing at my Aunt Doris's hairy cheek mole. I don't, I don't know what to say. I'm just trying to remind my listeners that this podcast is sponsored by Royal Retros, home with the best throwback jerseys, hats, and t-shirts around. I'll carve the turkey in a minute. I never liked you anyway. Can you be a good hip-hop artist and not have a good voice? Like, can your lyrics be so preposterously good that even if your voice is grating and annoying and not that clear and you don't enunciate well and blah, 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 it could still work? Or do you need the magic combination of both? I think your voice is more important than what you're saying. Because music is still not really about the words. It's about the flow and 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 all of the all of the the sounds of the all, all the sounds going on in the record. So I think the voice is more important than the lyrics. Right. There's people who are to me superbly dope as far as like what they're saying, but their voice aren't they're not hitting. It's not working out. You know what I'm saying? And they don't have really good careers. But then you could take somebody like like a young thug who you may feel don't say a lot of incredible things, um, but his voice and what he's able to do with octaves and where he's able to sit at in music works so well that he can be like, he can have a successful career. So I think your voice 
you know, when it comes to the business of selling hip hop records, it's more important than what you're saying. One of your greatest songs is a song called Certified. Freaking love Certified. Big fairy tale, she issued the facts. Not cheesy, but I sold my fair issue. Not wheezy, but Malone got that hustlers music. And them hustlers use it. Serve customers to me. Where'd that come from? Uh, Hungry. I was in Atlanta and, um, at that time, I couldn't get any West Coast legendary producers to work with. Like, it, it wasn't like I was asking them, but like, you couldn't even see them. There wasn't any, like, Dre was unobtainable at that time, which I had already met him, but he was unobtainable at that time. Warren G, I knew who he was, but I didn't have a phone call. And, you know, social media wasn't what it was now. And I was way too arrogant of a, of a, of a youngster to even like go through what it would take to even talk to them. You know, I didn't really truly understand the value of the producers at that point. So when I was in Atlanta working with DJ Toomp, I was honored because Toomp, you know, seen me at a little thing. It was like, hey, let's come to Atlanta. Let's do some records. Toomp got the biggest records in the country at the time. You know, he has a T.I. song. All these songs are huge. So I was out there and I was like, man, I'm finna just, you know, be the greatest gangster rapper ever. And I'm just going to say the the most uh, uh honest but things that make me culturally different than anybody that's ever came in this business and so when it came you know it was like oh these guys ain't you know they spin fairy tales i'm gonna issue the facts not jeezy but i sold my fair issue of crack like i'm not this i'm not gonna glamorize but i sold a lot of crack not wheezy but malone got that hustlers music and them hustlers use it serve customers to it i wouldn't even sign the cash money at that time when I made that song. So when I'm saying I'm not Wayne, but Malone got that Hustlers music and the Hustlers use it, served customers to it. Went from two to 300, got the Mexicans down, 100 crib, 100 plus, 100 Mexicans now, 100 round in the clip. Who want to get dumb with the New West prayers on these East Side drums, with the New West prayers, daddy calling the play. And we sacking wag rappers, boy, call it a day. Down South, call them choppers. Home, call it a K. Either way, ambulances come and haul them away. The line on that song is, and I'm laughing at you, rap niggas running from shit. That's the line. Why is that the line? Because in 2006, seven, when I recorded that song, like, Suge still had this ominous presence over the hip-hop industry. You know what I mean? As far as the, the, the genre that's hip-hop. And it was like, right. there's some kid, uh, some 25-year-old little punk coming out like, yeah, I'm laughing at y'all running from me. Who, who is he to run from? You know, and it was like, that was just crazy to people. I remember people seeing that, like, yo, you ain't worried about sugar? And I'm like, I ain't worried about nobody. You know, it's 7th Street Watts. Like, why would I be worried about somebody? You had no fear Zero. of pissing off Suge Knight. Nah. What's funny is, <laughs> the first time, so it wasn't the first time I performed it. It was about the fourth time I performed it. But it was the first time I performed it at the Klee Club. I was opening it up for T.I. Uh -huh. And um, it was in 2008. And Suge was there. And I knew he was there. And I had my DJ at that time. I was like, hey, when that part come on, play it acapella. Wow. And uh, <laughs> he dropped, uh, and it came. I'm laughing at you, rap niggas running for And everybody knew Suge was there. And they all looked up like, damn. And they looked up, and Suge was at the top balcony. He was like, what's up? I'm like, what's up? And I'm just going. I'm rapping still. Like, and he, I remember we met after the show. He was like, hey, you tough. You ain't no joke. Wow. So I, I've been dealing with his community forever, with the mob, power rules forever. You know what I mean? Like some of my closest partners from there, you know, uh, 
free my boy Mikey Rude as he's doing life. You know, he's a real player from over there. My boy Term, Rob, you know, I got family that grew up in that community. So, you know, I, I'm vested in, in their community like I'm vested in my own. You know, I know people there. Um, so, like, it was like, yeah, it was what it was. You know, at the worst, what do you want to fight? I'm 25, 26 years, 25, 26 years old, 6'3", you know, 297 pounds. It would have been a good fight. You know, at that time, not – and it wasn't to piss him off as much as it was to say, like, that's who – y'all running from somebody? I'm not running from nobody. Wait, I'm, I'm interested in this. Like, so, you know, Crips, you had a rough upbringing as far as, like, your mom and, and sure. sort of you were living in a motel at one point with your sure. stepdad, I think, and sort sure. of bouncing around – does all that harden you to the point where you have no fear or do you have to present no fear, but there's always some level of fear? Oh, it's always fear, but the, the willingness to combat it, that's the thing that changes it. Like I'm scared of all the time. I mean, that just particular time I wasn't scared because it was like, what is Shug going to fight me? Like, even if he win the fight, he's going to be in a fight. Right. You know, that I, Fighting enough made me stop being scared of fighting. You know, I mean, maybe a fear, but like it's like, oh yeah, this is gonna be good, you know. And I was, I'm good at it. So you know, even if he won the fight, you know, let's say Suge won the fight because he had more fights, you know, he gonna be in the fight. He gonna, yeah, he gonna leave there with a bloody nose. He gonna know he fought me, and he gonna tell somebody, man, that little youngster can fight. You know what I mean? So um, yeah, I'm, I'm still scared of things, but that experience, the way it, it molded me, all of those different things, is to be willing to combat it. Like to have courage, you know. There's no courage in the absence of fear. So I, I, I've already figured out that I'm a courageous person because I've been scared of things and then I tried it anyway. I just want to say I, I think you agree with me on this. Like I am um, in my job, journalism. I've knocked on a lot of doors of people who I don't know what's on the other side. I've knocked on the doors of murderers. I've knocked on the door of athletes. Right? And people are like, "How do you overcome your fear?" And it's like you actually don't. You just learn to walk. You just learn to walk through it. That's where greatness is truly defined. You know what I mean? The willingness to confront what you're scared of. Like, I've always realized I've stood more of a chance when I go confront the fear on my terms. Right. You, know, you don't want the fear. Like, if somebody is talking crazy, oh, glasses, I'm going to do this when I see you. I'm going to make sure you see me in the next hour. Right. That way, that way I'm approaching the problem. And then I could be at my best and then we could see, you know, but I, I've been taught you know, all of those lessons. And my father and my mother, rest her soul, confront the fear. Like, just go front. Like, let's go get to it. Because if you come up short, if you pass away, you know, that's just life. But you have to confront it because every day you live scared, man. You know what I'm saying? You ain't really living. You know, if, if you're scared, you can't go to certain communities. You know what I mean? You're not living like you're restricted. And I can't live that way. I mentioned your mom briefly. Your mom was a registered nurse. Mm -hmm. She had multiple terms in prison, including, I think, a 20 year. Uh, yeah, last sentence. time in the feds, 240 months. So. What is the impact on your life and your career of having a mom who faced so many struggles? You know, it's funny as life wasn't really bad, you know, up until the first time she went to federal prison. Were you tennis? Somewhere between 10 and 12. Okay. And, you know, the, the worst thing about my mom, because those are not the highlights, right? The highlights are, you know, the good things. Um, I think the, um, if I'm being honest, it made me raggedy in some ways because it made me think nothing could be permanent. What do you mean? Like, um, 
the problem was not her just going to jail. That's one thing that's devastating. Not having your mom for a year the first time, not having her for three years the second time, and then not being able to see her for seven years, you know what I'm saying? Or for six years, roughly five years. Um, those are huge, like mega problems. But the feds taking everything you own twice. You know what I'm saying? You don't have anything. You know, when they come take stuff, they take everything. You have no access to nothing. So, you know, my mom did all of the stuff she did to try to give us the best life possible. Did she need to? It's easy for me to say she didn't because she's a registered nurse. But, you know, she felt she needed to do it. And she did give us really nice, a uh, nice life. You know, even though it's in Compton, you know, I knew how to swim. I had a swimming pool. I could swim at six. You know, I had pretty cool clothes. I had hip clothes, you know, um, she tried her best to keep us in the experience, but not make sure that we really experienced poverty. She tried her best. You know, like I, I still seen poverty up close because my friends, some of my friends didn't have it, you know, and it also helped me a lot because it molded me to really not want to show off in front of people who don't have it. Like I never liked the feeling of going to school wearing an outfit and everybody else didn't have nothing. And I got this outfit that turned me off. Like I, I my mom, we would argue. I wouldn't even want to wear the clothes. I'm like, that's just not cool. I don't like what's inside of my mind is the only place I need to shine. I don't need an outfit. Like I could talk and, you know, I'm going to be me. Whatever I'm supposed to be is going to come out. So um, I think that that was the most troubling thing. And that affected me the most um, is that nothing was permanent. But at this point, I've even moved past that. You know I mean, at this point in my life, I've moved past worrying if everything is permanent and being grateful for what I have when I have it. Is it true your mom was selling STD shots? Yeah, I swear to God. Like, it's funny because, you know, one of my play uncles just got out. And, I, and, you know, she would get the medicine. She would buy the medicine, right? She would get a prescription for the medicine, go buy the medicine. And certain OG members of, you know, the Spooktown Compton Crib community, Occasion Block Compton Crib community, the Form Dog Compton Crib community, different people in Compton, like street legends, people I heard of, you know, that mean something. You know what I mean? Like probably more people than I even remember as a kid. You know what I mean? It's probably some people she'd be like, oh, I gave him a shot. And I remember they used to come over and, you know, whatever the, the STD was, we had to get the shot in the in, in your ass cheek. She would they would have to get shots. And I remember, you know, they used to make us leave because, you know, they didn't want us to see it. Yeah. And I remember peeking around and seeing like grown gang members crying because they was getting a shot in the, in the ass. There's nothing gangster you know I mean? about getting a shot in your ass. Man, and I just thought to myself, like, that was one of the most important things I saw because it meant that even the toughest guys were not, you know, they're not impervious to pain. Why was that valuable? Um, it made me realize every man is a lot more equal than I ever thought. Oh, yeah. Even the guys who was badasses out in the streets to fight everybody and talk about killing everybody was going to cry when they got a shot. That was an impeccable lesson. What's the first song you ever wrote? Do you remember, like, I'm going to be I'm going to be a songwriter. I'm going to write songs. A song called Gangsta Shit is what my my younger brother, K-Style, and my older brother, Pooh. We had a song called We Got That Gangsta Shit. What you sell it? We got that gangsta shit. Who you tell it? We got that gangsta shit. And they had this super cheesy melody that they were playing in a beat. We just said that gangsta shit to the melody. Wait, how old are you? Uh, I was grown. I was probably 22, 23. So you never, before you were 22, 23 years old, you never- yeah, I never even considered being a rapper, writing rap, musician, nothing. What made you decide I could do, at such a late age, I can do this or I'm going to give a shot at this? My mom, man, my, my mom and my father made me believe I could do anything. 
And um, the reason I started doing it is my my kid brother K Style got out of YA, and my mom wanted me to do stuff with him, and he wanted to be a rapper when he came on from you know YA, which is Youth Authority, which is like a a prison or like a jail for people that's under twenty five, but right. kind of hardened guys that's kids, and um, he wanted to rap, and I was having money, so I was paying for the studio time, and we started a, a group together. But before that, yeah, I wasn't really writing a bunch of raps like before i never wrote a rap before the age of 20. i never rapped or went to a concert or none of that were you listening to a lot of music yeah yeah my mom is a super huge music head like super huge. i mean her vinyl collection was just insane like she would literally go every tuesday it got so bad man she used to go to vip in compton and a couple people could probably tell you they remember her you know if you ever talk to any of these people but she would buy you know every bit of Two hundred dollars worth of records every Tuesday, and it got so bad she just started going to the one stops where the record stores would go to buy the records. Right, and of course, you know I'm her son, so I'm going and I'm picking records that I like. So yeah, I've been listening to music for as long as I can remember, and I mean a variety of music. Well, one of my favorite things about hip hop artists, and I think this probably crosses all genres, is like Dr. Dre. I heard him talking one time, and he was saying how his like psych up music is Nirvana. And when Tupac was a kid, he was listening to Kate Bush. He was listening to the Indigo Girls. He was listening to all kinds of music. You wouldn't even, you would never think, oh, Tupac listening to the Indigo Girls. It's not really a marriage you would picture. Sure. Are there artists you were listening to where people would be like, Glasses Malone was listening to Melissa Etheridge? Like, that's weird. I don't know if anybody would be surprised. Because, I, you know, my mom is a funk person, so she's going to listen to a ton of any urban artist cameo and all that stuff. But I think the person that people would be surprised the most is probably Madonna and probably Hall of Notes. That's my favorite group of all time, man. Yeah. But I don't know if Hall of Notes is really a surprise. I think like Madonna is probably a closer surprise, but even then, if you really, if people are vested in urban, like Madonna had a lot of run in Compton and Watts and stuff like that. She had a lot of run, but uh, Hall of Notes, I just genuinely think like people, everybody, how could who who just doesn't love Hall? Who doesn't love Daryl Hall and John O? Wait, I always make this argument. I swear to God, more than the Beatles, more than Michael Jackson, more than anyone. Everyone in America over the age of 10 knows at least one Hall of Notes song, even if they don't know it's if Hall they don't know the name of it. I agree. I agree. Um, what's funny is I just was talking about this on Twitter and I was like, I always say this and people get mad, but the more I learn about records, I never read it because I didn't read about music before I started, probably before 2011. I didn't read about music. Like, I didn't get the source of Double XL. Like, I didn't really do that. I was doing what I was doing in the streets and hanging and living. Um, But I knew the more I understood about music, the more I learned about records, I knew Billie Jean was a direct ripoff of I Can't Go For That. And then, right, I remember telling somebody this. Uh, I think it was Terrence Martin, the, the, the jazz player, the sax. And he was like, yeah, you didn't know that? I'm like, no, I didn't know that. He like, yeah, you can look that up. They talked about it. I was like, I knew it. I knew it because the more I learned about it and I was able to dissect it, I'm like, oh, he took this song. This is is actually the exact same song. (laughs) It's 100% true. And Hall has talked about it. Now I know it's true. Right. Now I, and, but now I have way more insight. So obviously the more you learn and you know, now people that are in the business you know, will tell you certain things more. They're like, how oh, did you know this? But I was explaining that, like, I could hear it not, it made perfect sense, because I'm like, who the fuck wasn't listening to Hall of Notes? You did a song in 2015, Thuggin' with uh, with Kendrick Lamar. Mm-hmm. I'm a motherfucking thug. 
transacts. Just hate. I'm trying to fuck a couple acts. Found got it, I'm a mate. I'm a mate. Still don't got it, I'm a take. Could you tell? I mean, it wasn't that long ago, but seven years ago. Could you tell the guy had different kind of skills at that point? Way before that, though. Yeah. Way before that. I was on tour with Kendrick in 2011. I've been on dots since probably 2006 or seven. Yeah. He was he was tough the whole time. Did I think he was number one rapper in the rap game tough? I thought rap was kind of lame. So I didn't think that they like I thought he would be better than that. But shit, it worked out and he ended up becoming the guy. You know what I mean? Like I think it's some really creative people around him as well. But he's a he he always been a special talent. And and more than anything, he's a great student, Jeff. That's the best guy. Michael Jackson is not like now, he's a superb talent. He's a gifted guy, but that don't matter. He is a student. Like when you see him and you're able to combine that he was able to mix, you know, uh, uh, certain, you know, when he dances, you could see he, he could mix James Brown. He could mix Jackie Wilson. He was such a combination of greatness. He was one of the greatest students. And people don't believe that. That's Kendrick. Kendrick, man, is like, you know, nobody knows this. You know, he's the funniest person alive that I actually really talk to. He's hilarious. But also he's like this incredible student. And that's the thing that people don't get. You know, he's like a, as a student, man, he's like top notch. He was always learning. So he was always destined to be the number one guy. That's interesting. Man, 40, 40 that works with Drake is the same way. Now, you could tell the guys that are students. How can you tell? Like listening to the music, what should what should people be looking for that says this guy's a student? Well, I think the general public won't know because they, you know, they they don't have enough time vested to remember what was yesterday. Yeah, it's true. When I look at Kendrick, man, I could sometimes I could hear the Andre 3000 and what he does. Um, we was on tour with Tech Nine, who probably I would say is the greatest showman in hip hop history. Uh-huh. Right. Tech Nine is like an incredible showman, like the best show in all of hip hop. Right. I, I put him up against Busta Rhymes or Red and Meth, who are the other greatest guys, you know, the yeah. tough guys that really go that go to town. But I remember he would just watch Tech Nine at the back of the show every day. He'd just be watching. And I know he's just breaking down everything he's doing. And now when I see certain things he does, I'm like, oh, that's Tech. Or if he does this, I'm like, oh, that's Andre 3000. Like he's such an embodiment of greatness all the time. You know what I'm saying? And that's really, you can see Michael Jackson. I saw an outfit where he was dancing on stage and I'm like, oh, that's Michael Jackson. Like I could tell what he's doing, even though it's not the exact same thing. I could tell all the inspiration from it. Just like when Michael Jackson made Billie Jean, when I heard it, I was like, oh, that's Hall of Notes. I can't go for that. Like I see what you were doing. So yeah. the average person won't know. They'll just be like, this person is just great. I've never saw anything like this. Well, me, I've saw it before because my job, right, since... I, I really got heavy in this around 2012 is to know that. But so, yeah, Elvis Presley's so awesome. You know what I mean? He's such an embodiment of studying music. I thought Elvis was a hero to most, but he never meant shit to me. You know what? But I could see why. But I, I could also see his success. He was such a fucking, you know, a, a student. He studied what he did. And, and that's the, the main catch. He always found himself in the right places. I have a super random hip hop question for you. All right. You're going to like this. I'm reading. I was doing a a newspapers.com search for you, which is this huge database. By the way, it's totally worth a hundred dollar investment. If you want to have. Okay. I'll grab it. Okay. 2013, you performed at something called power bash and it featured Chris Brown, honey cocaine, 
DJ Sour Milk, and Iggy Azalea. So this is in Hawaii. This is in Hawaii. Here's what I want to know, because we've debated this a lot, and I've never asked a hip-hop artist. My son and I, my son's a hip-hop head. Nice. Iggy Azalea comes along, and she has this moment. Not even a moment, probably a five-year run where she's Mm. charting and she's doing great. And you hear her music, and she kind of uses slang and she, you know, sounds kind of whatever, you know, hip hop, blah, blah, blah. And then you hear her talk and she's kind of a dainty Australian girl, white girl from Australia who's kind of, and I feel like after a while, people were just like, this is kind of bullshit. This isn't authentic. Should we be judging her harshly or should we be like, you sold it, you made your money, mazel tov. Is it culture appropriation? Uh, Yes. uh, Because you wouldn't say Eminem is. No, no. I think I think actually what's funny is I was having this. I had this thought like I'm super. I was talking to a a guy from New York and I was saying that that like that. The more I get into hip hop, that feels like my job. I'm at the front door like, yo, no, you could come in, but you're not hip hop. Like you can rap, but you're not hip hop. So before we get to Iggy, Eminem situation is unique because in the 80s, M would have been a punk rocker. Yes. And I think there was a street urban perspective from, you know, white America you know, that usually went to punk rock. When everybody, you know, that was darker was going to hip hop, black going to hip hop, the white people were going to punk rock. That came from the same experience. That's why punk rock was like what it was. It was super, it was hip hop's first cousin almost. Really, it was like for real. You know what I mean? You could, they they went together, but they went. But I think when M came, it was different. Like you could, like the Beastie Boys, a couple of people that went that way at times, he went that way. So I do think he had a hip hop experience. Now, Iggy, I think we should have never just considered her a hip hop artist. See, I think we have to accept that rap, the delivery, the genre that is rap music is popular, is mainstream. So you can have an Iggy, right, who's like has nowhere near the background of the traditional hip hop artist. Right. But she can rap. And I think the only mistake is when we call it hip hop. Because then we start comparing people that are not comparable. You know, and I know people that worked on her first project, some of my closer associates in the music business, you know, Sticks, Chords, uh, a few guys, Walter French, a couple guys I know really worked on her project. So I know where her lingo and, you know, the culture, the seasoning that she used came from. But I think the only mistake is when we reference her as a hip hop artist instead of just keeping her as a mainstream pop artist who's making rap records. Iggy calls you right now. She's like, I love your work. Would you be willing to appear on my next album? Uh, I will go listen to the song. Yeah. If the song is fire, yeah. I work with anybody. Like, I don't, like, the more I get into this, like, I I see my place in everything. Like, you know, there's a rightful place for the streets and everything. Yeah. I mean, you've agreed to write a dental song with me, and I'm just a journalist. Right, facts. And I'm going to make it pretty gangster rap, too. Nice. We have a final question for you. I mean, I always ask sports writers and journalists, what's their worst moment with an athlete? Like, what's your worst encounter, blah, blah, blah. What is your worst moment as a touring performer, like in your career, performing live? What's what's your worst moment performing? I've been to a show where it was three people. Oh, I love this. Where was that and what happened? Um, it was a show in Phoenix. And um, I don't know. I just genuinely think the promoter wanted me just to come. Like they didn't promote it. Like everybody I knew in Phoenix did not know I was coming. It was like, you in Arizona? I'm like, yeah. And they're like, 
Y'all didn't even know. And I'm like, what? And I remember being there was like three or four people. And I remember rocking it like it was 4,000 or 40,000. I've rocked the shit out of those three or four people. I mean, genuinely, that was crazy. And I, you know, I, I knew I had became a, a consummate professional because it didn't matter who was there. I'm like, I'm rocking out. And I remember I was so proud of myself as as much as I was shamed and embarrassed and hurt. Like, you know, I, I was so proud the next day. Like, yeah, I rocked that shit. Like, I rocked it like it was Lollapalooza. Like, I rocked that shit. That's cool. Uh, Wait, I just want to say I am um, years ago. I was in a in a coffee shop in middle of nowhere, Mississippi, working on a book. And there's a country singer who is awesome, like awesome. And there are only like five of us in the bar, in the coffee shop. And this guy's playing his ass off. And I put it on Twitter. Do you remember the rapper Bubba Sparks? I just started following Bubba within the last week. Oh. He put out stuff. I'm like, well, you still got it. Yeah. Bubba Sparks is talented. And somehow we were following each other on Twitter. I posted a clip of this guy playing in this coffee shop in the middle of nowhere, Mississippi. Bubba Sparks sees it. He says to me, can you get me this guy's contact information? And they end up working together. And I just think nowadays in 2022, you could be in front of three people, but it could easily be 3 million people. If one of those three people happens to be a guy who's an Instagram influencer, you just never know, you know? Yeah. And you got to rock it, man. And it's funny. Cause I was so devastated that night I left. I was like, man, what happened? And I mean, I got my money. It was like, pay you $5,000. I'm like, man, you didn't even promote this. But I remember the next morning I woke up, right? Minus the money, like it didn't matter. It was three people like, damn, am I, like that's what my career. And I remember just the next day thinking like, me, me and my dad was like, man, we rocked that shit. That's awesome. <laughs> awesome. Also, you know what? The worst situations are always the best stories later on. It was dope though. It was dope. Yeah, it's awesome. Um, well, listen, man, I, uh, first of all, I'm excited for our dental song. Second of all, I'm a huge admirer, a big fan of your work. And I appreciate you doing this. It was a long time coming. I kept screwing it up. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. We got some stuff to do. Dental work. My God. (laughs) I want to thank today's guest, Glasses Malone, for joining me on Two Riders Singing Gang. You can follow Glasses on Twitter at G Malone and on Instagram at G-L-A-S-S-E-S-L-O-C. If you have a chance and enjoy Two Riders Singing Gang, please go to the vehicle of your choice and leave a nice review. I make no money doing this podcast and I rely on word of mouth. Music is by the great MC Whiteout. Thanks again for joining me. And remember, keep writing.